I'm Claire Liu, and I'm the CEO of Know Your Team software that helps leaders avoid becoming a bad boss. And I am completely thrilled to have someone on the heartbeat today who I've known for a while, I've really admired for a while, and it's a real honor to welcome Matt Westgate on the show. So Matt is the CEO and co-founder of Lullabot. They are a completely remote company that has been doing amazing Drupal design development and strategy for the past, I want to say more than 10 years. And they're an extremely established firm that has clients, everyone from Martha Stewart to Georgia.gov to MSNBC to IBM. And I've respected Matt a lot because amidst the really difficult, I think, industry of building a sustainable digital agency. He's managed to do it with an entirely remote company. And the ethos, Matt, that you really have around thinking intentionally about how you treat your employees, creating the best work environment. I always learn a lot when I talk to you. And so, you know, I'm really excited to have you on here today. There's a ton of questions I've got around everything from remote work to building a company that you likely didn't know was going to turn into what it is today. But before we even get into all of that, I do want to start with this one question that I ask every single person who I have on the podcast. And Matt does not know this question, everyone. So coming to you completely live. So the question is, what is one thing, or it could be several things, that you wish you would have learned earlier as a leader? Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, that's I, I can see why you would ask that question. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just one thing. One thing that uh, I wish I would have learned earlier. can be several, too. We got, we got time. We can get into it. You know, when you start a company, you may not necessarily intend to start a company. Sometimes it just happens through the opportunities. You know, my, um, my story is I was participating in the Drupal community. There were maybe 30 developers, not the 3,000 or, you know, 30,000 developers that there are today. Right. And I was just doing what I, what I, what I loved to do, which was to, to write code with really cool group of, of people. And the phone kept ringing. People wanted to do paid work and stuff. And so, you know, I sort of begrudgingly started a company. Uh, and I did that <laughs> because I wanted to hire my friends and build software together. You know, and when I first started out, there's that transition of like, I, I'm doing the thing that I love right now, but then the business needs a voice, the business needs structure. And so there's that reluctance of like, okay, now I got to go kind of be the company. And when I became the company, I felt like my job was to protect people. And mm. I, I feel like in hindsight, I may have done that to a fault. And what I, what I mean by that yeah. is uh, someone came in, you know, okay, oh, you're a developer now. Now my job as the company is to take care of everything else for you. And I went through this transition of realizing that in taking care of everything for everyone, I may have limited their ability to do their best work. Because it's kind of like working without context, right? If you don't know what the business needs, if you don't know if the business is healthy or not healthy, if you're trying to shield all of your employees from all of that, 
all they can do is just that small part of their job, which is good in sort of like a good little soldier kind of way, but bad in sort of knowledge work and, and allowing people to do their best and yeah. have, allowing them to make decisions by knowing how does the company make money? You know, what is defined as success? What are the company's KPIs? I sort of had to, sh I wanted to shield them from hmm. all of that. Yeah. And... I could go on and on, but there was a point where that wasn't working anymore and, and our company was in jeopardy and we made a huge pivot at that point. Wow. Yeah. I'm over here nodding my head because that instinct is so real. It's so real. I don't know if it's the sort of founder psychology. I don't know if it's fueled by a fear of what will happen if people have this information. I don't know if it's fueled, I'm speaking for myself here, ego and thinking only I can handle this information. Yeah, it's such a pervasive, tangible thing that exists. I'm so, so curious to hear, Matt about this time that you described where you kind of had the wake-up call. What, what happened? Yeah. Take us back yeah. there. Like, yeah, what was going on? You know, what, what came up for me when you were talking was uh, the idea of feeling like a, a fraud or huh. the realization that like, wow, if they really knew what was going on, they would see that the business is more fragile than what it is, right? Yeah. Um, because, you know, you have to, when you're starting off, sometimes you have to talk about lines of credit and like, you know, making, building up the reserve and all of that sort of stuff. And you're like, I want to shield the company from that. Mm. Or I want to shield the employees from that. And yet, like, they're also the ones that are out, out there on the front lines doing all the work that could help make or break things for the entire organization. Yes. So for us, we reached a point where we were running into some cash flow issues and we had to ask the team to take a pay cut. This was early mm, on. Yeah. That's never the place you want to be. That's <laughs> the worst. So we did that and people didn't think we were go ever going to reinstate those like they thought it was going to be a permanent thing, you know. Mm. And we went through that. And we had a team retreat coming up at the time. And I had watched uh, Oprah Winfrey back when she had her, her television show. And I just happened to catch the show where it was about people that were in bankruptcy and people that were stopping smoking. And hmm. the first thing that she had them do when they wanted to make a change was invite all their friends over, invite their family over to their house and tell them. Like, here's, I, I smoke, I've smoked for, for 10 years, I never told you, I'm telling you now because I need your help, and I wow. can't do this without you. And the first thing we need to do is admit where we're at. And I thought, yeah. oh my God, there's something there. Huh. And so I read this book called The Great Game of Business. It was mm, by Jack yes. Stack. And that guy, his story is really interesting if you've never read it. But he's um, sort of one of the, the pioneers of the open books management philosophy where you share your income statement, profit and loss statement, balance sheet. You share that with your team because we're all in it together. And the more they know, the better they can do their job. So I thought, all right, let's do this at the retreat. Ooh. My CTO had an accounting background. She was an accountant. Mm -hmm. uh, and so she led an accounting 101 class the, at the retreat. Uh, we did things where we took a, a stack of pennies 
of a, of a hundred pennies and each penny was a percent. And we played a guessing game of like, where do you think the costs go in the company? Put 20, 20 pennies over here for admin and, and general expenses. Put, you know, however yeah. pennies you think for, for salary and stuff. And what it did is it started a dialogue and employees generally think that companies make more money than they do. Right. Um, that for every dollar totally. the company takes in that, you know, 80 cents of it goes to the, the profits of the company. And so some of it is just an education of where things are. But mm-hmm. what it did is it opened up a, a really brutal conversation for us, which was, I don't want to keep living this way of running a company paycheck to paycheck. You know, mm. I don't like this idea of uneven cash flows and, you know, doing a line of credit with the bank and then the bank owns the business. Like I want to live differently. You know, I don't know everything to do, but I've got some ideas and I need your help. And we all, I need everybody's voices and brains in this because this is better for all of us. Nobody left. Like that was the biggest fear, right? It's like, yeah, I'm putting it all out there. You know, I don't even know if they'll just get up and leave or, or, or what. Yes. But they didn't. And, and we set a goal. We said, I like to say intentions over goals, but we set an intention of yes. building up a cash reserve, 10% of our revenue for a year in the bank. And we did it. And, and it took a year, but we did it together. And that, that opened this whole new world for me of like, wow, these, it's okay to, I don't know how to, I don't know the diplomatic way to say it other than like, it's okay to treat people like adults, you know, like give them everything, <laughs> everything that they need to do a kick-ass job. Yeah. But there's a lot of fear. There's a lot of, of, of threat. You know, what if somebody can do a job better than me? Or what if somebody sees a, a, sta- a mistake on the profit and loss statement, you know, or like, there's just all of that stuff to go through. And yet in a distributed company, sure, you can't micromanage. Sure. You can't drive to everybody's house and see how they're doing. Yeah, there, there's so much I want to ask you about here, Matt, and so much I want to unpack. The first is just the sort of thrust behind your approach in this to begin with, right? Your inspiration from, from good old Oprah. And essentially, I mean, and I say that, you know, tongue in cheek, but what she's modeling or or what you described was, it's essentially like this, the science of organizational change management, which is in order to make a big shift in any company, you have to establish trust. And the Mm -hmm. number one best way to establish trust is actually to show vulnerability. So we actually, I may have shared this with you, we ran this, um, this big survey last year where we asked people what they thought the most effective ways for building trust was. And the typical things that you would think like team retreats or even, um, thanking people for a job well done didn't necessarily build trust. And the number one thing people said was showing vulnerability. Mm. That was it. It was admitting your mistakes, showing vulnerability, and then following through on the things that you say you're going to do. It was those those three things. So what you intuitively felt like would be effective, just sort of <laughs> by the data, <laughs> is effective when you're trying to announce a big change, when you're about to make a big shift. And it's really counterintuitive for us as leaders, and I applaud you for this, because like that, that's terrifying. <laughs> it is terrifying to, like you said, open yourself up and be like, the business might be a lot more fragile than we're willing to admit. And oh my God, does that mean people are going to leave? Or does that mean they're going to think I'm a bad CEO? And then you use the word fraud, right? Mm-hmm. 
Like, I think there's such an interesting conflation of like identity that we have with our business and who we are as leaders that sometimes gets in the way of us trying to make the most sound decisions. And, and I love and what you shared, how you, how you moved past that. One of the things I wanted to ask you, I mean, like literally there's like 10 things that I could just like dive into here of what you shared. Uh, but one of the things that you, that I found very remarkable was, okay, so the sharing of we're going to make this shift, we're going to be, you know, become more of an open book, transparent company, and not just doing that, but pairing it with the education piece, right? And for you, the intention being that the context for which people are operating and how they are doing their jobs is what is going to make us successful. Tell, share a little bit more about like your philosophy on that and how you thought about that education piece. And, and how did you balance sort of that fear of like, are people going to get freaked out? What, what was the thinking behind them? Yeah, there's any number of ways to go with that. And this is a really fun conversation. This is the stuff that, that I live and breathe. So I really enjoy sharing this too. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, like teaching is just a part of our DNA. Like when I yep. learned how to build websites, I ran to the libraries and offered if I could teach free classes because I didn't have computers to share with people. <laughs> I thought I had found like the golden cup, you know? Yeah. Uh, I wanted to liberate everyone through HTML. <laughs> but yeah, no, I mean, the, the, the sharing component, it's interesting. Uh, being a distributed company, it, sharing actually is easier. Uh, I don't know if people Ooh, buy into tell that. Tell me that. Tell it, me it more about that. Is. Okay. Yeah. Because asynchronous communication is easier, right? So like if I have a conversation, oftentimes there will be meeting notes. Like I can write every conversation that I have can have a URL. Yes. Right? So uh, an audio conversation gets recorded. Uh, I write up something. I distribute it broadly. It's there for when people want to consume it. It's actually easier for me because everybody is using the same communication tools, right? I'm not just having a conversation with one person that then hmm. I have to go broadcast in a bunch of different places. I can invite yes. everybody to the call or we can. And so that part I don't find difficult, the sharing uh, and education part. What did you find most challenging about that situation, right? Like if, if the education part, I mean, because that's the part that quite frankly, Matt, I found most novel is that you weren't just like, okay, here are the books. Great. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, it's that you literally, I mean, you walked, it sounds like people through really thoughtful exercises and practices of like, can you guess? And no, I yeah. found that, yeah, I found that incredible. I, so if that was the easy part, yeah, curious what the hard part was. Yeah, no, the, uh, the, I mean, look, I didn't grow up with a business degree. I didn't, yeah. you know, I went to university, I, I got a degree, but it wasn't in, it wasn't in that. So when I realized that we needed to know our numbers, it had to start with me and my leadership team. We took a Coursera class for, what was it, three months, a three-month class that we did where we had to learn the ins and outs. And so we took a lot of the things that we used from that and shared it with the team and did the same exercises with the team because we had hired a CFO, an external CFO at the time. And they were telling us about KPIs and all of these things and net present value. And all that. I was like, I give up. Like I'm tapping out. I can't, I can't do this. You know, like totally. before I hire you, I need to go get smart and I need to go learn all this stuff so that I can, I can be at the, yes. not at the same level, but I need to understand 
what you're right. sharing. And so we all did that and then, and then could, could engage the team. Right. But it does make for better employees. I mean, they, they are making the decisions, right? Like they are trying mm-hmm. to choose, like, do I spend my time here? Do I spend my time here? Well, how is this project structured? You know, how much value does it have to the organization? And the more that you can include them in those conversations and actually give them a voice, you know, shift that transparency to collaboration in some way. Yes. You know, the, the, the more it's, it's like you hired the people that you hired for a reason to be the professionals that they are at the work that they do. Yes. Right. Not just to give marching orders. Like, right. Uh, and so the more that you can engage them to do that and engage their, their brains, um, the better that they can be. Absolutely. The big realization that I had is that as leaders, we're making all of these decisions and have all of these data points in our heads. And then all we're doing is sharing the end result or the the conclusions with our team. And that sucks, man. That sucks, (laughs) right? To be like, stand on high and say, I have decreed that we will do this and not this and this. And they're just like, I I got a question. Yeah. Why? Why? Why are you doing this? And like, why didn't you bring us into the conversation earlier? And so around that time that we were running into problems, I also had this thing of like, I want to value my job, not just on how the prof- how profitable the company is, or not just on, on how well the employees are doing or the clients we have. I really want to try and do this thing. I want to see if I can align the goals of the company Hmm. with that of the team. Hmm. In other words, what if we all were going in the same direction? Why does it have to be this curtain here where the company has all these things going on and the team, you know, doesn't? Like, what if we were all going the same place in the same way for all the things? God, that just just seems clean and, and a lot less stress on on my head and needing to keep everything separate and answer to different voices and all yeah. of that. I'm smiling over here, Matt, because what you have described is what sort of the seminal management scholars of our time have proven out to be true in terms of effective and high-performing teams, right? Like if you even look at – there's a this wonderful scholar whose name's Edward Dietschy, and he's spent you know 20-plus years studying human motivation, and he talks about how – the way for people to actually do their best work is not for it to be an extrinsic motivation, so someone telling them to do, or a fear, or a threat, or a reward, but is for them to be intrinsically motivated. And the only way to do that is to really align with what it is that they want. And it's the big challenge that so many companies and organizations, you know, have. So I love that, like, you have this, <laughs> I mean, you've spent over a decade doing this, like, trying to figure out. How do you line that team up? How how do you get to that that place? And that and that intrinsic motivation that uh, that's cool. Yeah, I hadn't I hadn't heard of that, but that's awesome. Um, that intrinsic m- motivation. The reason to tap into that is because then people start to share gifts with you that otherwise aren't accessible. I'm talking about like yes. passion, right? Like that's yes. that's the way to passion. You can't ask somebody. Oh. To be passionate, totally. like they have to want nope. it. And it comes, that's the source, that intrinsic motivation. I want to do this because it feels good to me. Right. I want to share my passion, right? you know, with this team, with these Absolutely. people. And what's fascinating is that people all have it. They don't always show it, but they all have it. 
And we as leaders and the structures we've created in our company sometimes or oftentimes drown, drown that out. So it's within every single person, right? And there's so many studies that have been done that when people are actually, it's fascinating, whether it's kids or adults, school, you know, classrooms or, or in companies, when people are doing things because they truly believe that it's something that they want to do versus someone else or out of fear or, or for a reward, they perform better. So the outcome's actually better. They learn more and they actually enjoy the process more too. And that's all with intrinsic motivation to your point. So I, I think the hard thing, right, is because I think a lot of folks who'd be listening to this would go, yeah, no, totally. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm with you, Matt. I'm with you, Claire. How? Right? Yeah. There's stuff in the company that has to get done that someone has to do. There's things that are hard. That are There are things that hell, I have to do, you know, as the leader that they don't fall into my passion. Like what, how do you, how do you do this? How do you tap into people's intrinsic motivation or how do you try to create that alignment between self and team and team and organization? Yeah. Well, well I mean, whenever I get uncomfortable, <laughs> uh, I've learned to lead with authenticity. Yeah. Right. Like, just kind of like, I mean, and it's hard. It's like, well, be vulnerable. It's really easy, you know. But like, in my experience, if you're vulnerable, by sharing your vulnerability, by being authentic authentic about it, you sort of take the vulnerability away, mm. right? Like, there's a, there's a moment where you become human mm -hmm. and uh, you trade that vulnerability for hopefully earning trust, mm. right? Yes, and so it, it, what it does is it, it's the start of a dialogue. The, the, the other thing that comes to mind is just like it's just getting out of the way sometimes. Yeah. Like we, the leaders are often doers, right? Of like, yes. okay, there's a problem. I got to fix it. The problem, I got to fix it. And so having that, taking that step, it's a little bit cliche, but taking that step back and say, well, how do you think we should solve it? Right. You know, what, what do you think we should do? And allowing people to put their brains and, and voices and passion into the problem totally. rather than solving it for them. You know, reminding yourself, I hired this person for a reason. You know, yeah. I, I, they they are at the forefront of this. They are our marketing person. Like, if, if anybody knows right. the answer, it's going to be them. And in my job is to give them the tools and the resources and the guidance that they need. Absolutely. Yeah. No, you were saying, yeah, if anyone knows the answer, they're, they're going to be the ones who, who know it. It is, it's so sort of reinforcing to so many other conversations that I've had with other executives and CEOs. So you might know Wade Foster, who, who runs uh, Zapier. And, you know, I've, we've had him and we've had Michael Lopp, who's the VP of engineering over at Slack on the, on the show too. And they both have talked about something really similarly about one, the best managers don't solve problems themselves. They let their team solve the problems that they hired them to do. And then Michael Lopp has talked a lot about how the best leaders aren't busy. And it's about, to your point, holding space, creating space yeah. for people to figure things out on their own. Someone can't be intrinsically motivated to figure something out if you don't give them the space to do that, right? And so, I, yeah, I so appreciate that reinforcement. And, uh, and to your point, it also requires authenticity and some vulnerability to mm -hmm. give that up. And say, all right, it's I'm going to back off. I, I don't have all the answers. It's you know, I'm I'm not the decision maker here. I'm wondering, Matt, 
you know, you talked a lot about vulnerability, about building trust. In a remote team in particular, there's so many executives, CEOs, and managers that I've talked about or talked with rather who've shared and admitted that building trust in a remote team is particularly challenging in their opinion. You're not face-to-face. You um, maybe have folks coming in from, you know, a lot of different countries, different even geographies within the United States. Like that always adds to, to a feeling even of distance in a company. I'm curious what your experience with building trust within a remote company has been uh, throughout the years, how it's changed, how you think about it at Lullabot, and what you feel like you've done really well on this and – maybe some of the mistakes you've made along the way too. Yeah, sure. That's a great question. Maybe a, a place to sort of start is, is by yeah. an admission that you have physical companies uh, yeah. that, uh, you know, have their ways of doing things in person, all hands on deck meetings and stuff like that. You have remote companies that mm-hmm. uh, grew up with processes and systems. And then you have those companies in the middle that yeah. have some remote and some physical. Those are the hardest companies mm. because everybody's using different communication systems. Mm. Those are the companies that are going to struggle the most with this kind of a general question because yes. it's Sally's birthday and there's yep. birthday cake in the kitchen office. The mass email goes out to all the employees. 50% aren't there. You know, they're, yep. they're remote employees. Uh, and so they yep. don't get the birthday cake. And so like that is a really tough problem to solve. As a remote company, though, it's sort of the same as a physical company. You get to pick the same tools that everybody uses. You know, you do have time zone differences, which you need to take into account. And, you know, one of the ways that we've, we've tried to hire 12 hour time zone differences and things like that. And, and candidly, it hasn't worked for us. You know, hmm. we found, yeah. we found that a, a nine hour time difference at the most. Uh, yes. is is the most that we can do. We six hours for us uh, from an from a U.S. Eastern time is as far as we'll go in in the the hiring process because we've got to have some overlap. Super interesting. And do you, is that because like frequency of touch point is you think so yeah. integral to that sense of connection? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because like, say you're in, you're mm. in Spain, right? You can yeah. work a, a, a noon to eight over there and yep. get sort of that nine to five overlap more or less, you know, in the, in the U.S. Eastern time. And so there's enough touch points in there. Be- and because we do client services work and most of our clients are in the U.S., we've got to have some overlap there. But, you know, we have town halls uh, once mm. a month where everybody comes on and they type their questions in Slack. Any question is fine for the leadership mm-hmm. team. Uh, and then we, we answer those questions. We have silly, fun things that we do that are really, really important because it's the equivalent of like going hmm. and catching a football game on the weekend okay. or things like What's that. What's an example? So, I would get, yeah. Uh, so one is uh, we have a, a serendipity call. That's a half an hour every Friday morning, just sort of like, hey, it's Friday. Um, We've got this long document that the the whole team has contributed to about silly questions. You know, first book that you read, first type of car, you know, one thing that you're scared of that nobody knows or, you know, um, awkward haircut photo, whatever it is. Um, And and we have a, a script that puts people into groups, uh, random groups of five, and they mm. just 
talk for half an hour. And the question is sort of like an icebreaker question, right? But yep. otherwise it's, hey, how was your week? What are you planning to do this weekend? And it's really important. You know, it's just yeah. sort of like, ah, I never get to talk to this person. I get to hear them. Absolutely. It's not about work. Um that kind of thing. Uh, and so we do a, we do a team call too every Monday morning. The whole company, mm -hmm. uh, almost 60 of us jump on the mm -hmm. phone and we have a little script that keeps track of who's talked and who hasn't talked. And so each mm. person gets two minutes and then the leadership team gives an update at the end. But like just oh. bringing those people together, the Slack channels you have are important too. Sure. A mental health Slack channel, a dog mm. Slack channel, a cat Slack channel, you know, all of that kind of stuff too is really yeah. Really important. Have fun. You got to remember to have fun. And with a distributed company, you need to be more intentional about it. Yes, absolutely. That is that is definitely the consistent feedback. I mean, and even for us as, you know, a remote company ourselves that we, we think a lot. I mean, even for being so small, right? But we have to think intentionally. Like, I always think, you know, if we were co-located, I would have sort of defaulted to being a lot less intentional about social interaction and about connection. But being remote, it's like, oh, we really have to sort of systematize it and really think about it a lot more thoroughly even being being so small. Uh, one thing caught my attention in what you said, you talked about a, a mental health Slack channel. And I <laughs> actually, I was reading the blog, the Lullabot blog um, the other day, and you wrote uh, a post about how you're doing, it sounded like a mental health initiative, and it was something that you talked about during the last retreat. I would love to, to hear more about, yeah, where this came from and, and, and why this is of any importance to you as a CEO and as a leader. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I got a little emotional about this one. <laughs> um, there's the light and there's the shadows about being a remote company. Everybody likes to talk about, like, there's that whole, I don't know, like, sort of like influencer, like, look, I'm in a Mongolian gear and my <laughs> digital you know, nomad. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that stuff. <laughs> and like, yes, you can do those things, but that sure. comes with its own fear and anxieties as well of like not knowing mm. where you're going to work the next day. And, you know, like, it's so the, the shadows of, 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 of remote work is, is isolation depression mm -hmm. somebody mm -hmm. may be going through something really difficult and you you don't even know because you're yeah. just getting this text every now and then from them you know yes and so you know our jobs is not to pretend that everything's okay all the time it's to sort of be a little bit you know uh anxious about what are the places that could be that could sort of seep into our organization that could hurt us yes and i was just really feeling that one day and so i wrote up this mm -hmm. thing on my internal company yeah. blog and I just said hey like we've been fortunate that we haven't had to to deal with this but I, I fear that this is an area that we need to improve on and there's this one guy in particular JD Flynn who's an okay. awesome human being and I saw him give a talk about mental health and open source software and all that and I was just totally moved by by what he said and so I mm -hmm. said well what do you do in this like with anything else you start talking about it and you just start putting it out. And so I put a, a, a yep. message out to my team and I said, does anybody want to talk about this with me and like figure out what we could do, what's lacking, how we could, how we could improve. And so we just started a dialogue and we sent a survey out mm -hmm. to the team and said like, where are we dropping the ball on this? Wow. You know, people got back like, I've tried to hire a therapist, but I can't figure out our insurance. Your insurance mm. costs are too expensive. I feel like I can't talk to my manager about this because I'm, wow. I'm going to get judged, you know. And so 
we're still having these these meetings and, and figuring out things to do. But but yeah, no, like we call it we call it submarining is the the name that we huh. that we use. You know, when somebody goes dark for a while and we haven't heard from them, and so yes. we want to make sure that our managers are empowered to know what to do and how to reach out and how to give support um, and all of those things. But yeah, you gotta you gotta stay present in a distributed company, you know, and have Absolutely. ways to, 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 on how to do that, you know? I think that's incredible. And it's interesting sort of when, when you look at the numbers of actual depression and loneliness in the workplace, it actually isn't any more prevalent. I've looked at some numbers in remote workplaces as it is in, in physical spaces. I mean, we one are One in now- five, right? One in five, one in four. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's like pretty, it's pretty, it's like oddly similar. I think that sort of the assumption would be like, oh, definitely if you're in a remote company, you know, the tendency maybe to, to experience that, that might be higher. But what I find fascinating is, you know, we live in this, this new work environment where you, you know, you may be a co-located company, but you're just talking to all your teammates in Slack all day and maybe they never see your face, right? Mm-hmm. And there's something about uh, the sensitivity that we have to have as leaders to this because it is, I mean, how many studies are there about just how loneliness and lack of social interaction affect just lifespan, (laughs) right? Like, forget about like work performance, like forget about work performance, but like mental, like lifespan, right? And so the approach that you're taking to this, I think is so refreshing. I mean, and so in line with your whole philosophy for how you think about pretty much everything as a leader, right? Of being open, talking about it, and having the conversation. I also find so remarkable that you've created this environment where you actually have team members admitting to you that they don't feel comfortable talking to their manager about it and are willing yeah. to be so open. I think some leaders who might be listening to this, their fear is radio silence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Can we lean into that for a moment? That's Let's uh, lean into that's it. the yep. okay. All right. Uh, the closing thought on the mental health thing is I've also found that people that work by themselves at home. Yeah are people that they, we, you need to empower them to be proactive about the energy that they need to recharge. Mm. I had one person, for instance, she never bought coffee because her way mm. of like staying sort of like vibrant and engaged was going, leaving her house, having a reason to leave her house to go get coffee. Right. That was her way of yeah. making sure that she got out at least once a day, interacted yep. with her friends at the cafe or whatever and did that. So oftentimes people that live with other people or have families and stuff, they've got a, enough social interaction, generally speaking. But yeah. that's just been my been my experience on that. Two principles have been been really important to me. One is aligning the company goals with the team goals. Uh, that's been one thing. The other thing you just talked about, which was um, psychological safety. Mm-hmm right? Which is kind of a wild Mm, concept. There was a a woman, I don't remember her name right now, but she really advocated for this. She gave a TED talk. Amy Edmonston. Thank you. I think it's Amy Edmonston. Yeah. 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 And she said, you will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with questions, thoughts, or concerns. Mm, I was like, oh man, that's wow, like on the surface, it sounds so easy. So I started to put it into practice. Yeah. It's hard. It was not easy. (laughs) No, I want to take everything personally, you know, like I want to be offended by everything that comes up and to say, you know what, Claire, I'm going to make a safe space for you. 
Tell right. me, how do you really feel about things? Right. And my obligation to you is to keep that space safe. It's not easy to do. It's so challenging, especially like this is it's so funny because like I, you know, we, as you know, Matt, like we run workshops on this stuff. Like it's like I do this stuff for a living. And even in my day to day practice as a CEO, I find the line of setting a tone of psychological safety and yet at the same time wanting to maintain a standard of here's how things in the company should run. Here's kind of what I want an opinion of myself and of the team to be like, that's a hard, they're not always like in conflict within each other, but sometimes it's hard to to have them in concert with one another. Like it's hard for them to coexist. Uh, and so it's to your point, it's such a hard, hard thing to, to do in practice. Yeah. But, and yet it starts with us. I mean, if right. we're not modeling the behavior, nobody else is going to. And in those critical moments, everybody is looking to us to see exactly. how we how we respond. Exactly. But it's also been great. So, you know, you ask, how do you get people to surface things about mental mm-hmm. health and how the company's really doing? Right. You got you got to make it a safe space. Got to make it a safe it's space. A, it's a process. It's Yes. It's a journey to get there. Oh. Well, Matt, I know so many people who are listening to this podcast are going to be looking to you in terms of how they're thinking about leadership. This has been absolutely incredible. I have one last sort of burning question before before we get off here. And, and I truly could talk to you for hours. And so I'm just trying to cut myself off here preemptively. You've been running a remote company for... Yeah, I mean, for a good, what it's been what, over 13 years? Definitely over, yeah, it's, exactly. I mean, before sort of the idea in many ways of running a remote company has, you know, been in vogue and hot, et cetera. And I'm sure you've sort of seen the sentiment of it being something of, oh, what do you mean you're remote to now being popular, really interesting. What's like your biggest pet peeve when people ask you about a remote company or you hear someone who's trying to become a remote company or just like this, a thing that you hear a lot from other CEOs and managers when talking about remote companies where you're like, you know what, I want to set the record straight or you know what, that's not true. Or, you know what, for us, we actually have found this to work. Curious if there's been anything of that nature. That's really interesting. I think that uh, probably the biggest stereotype to bust on that one is that remote companies don't communicate. And I would argue that they communicate, they have the potential to communicate better than physical companies. Hmm. Uh, I think I said earlier that you can give every piece of kind of communication that you have a URL, a link. It can be recorded, it can be written. Oftentimes, remote companies, to be their best, I'm going to go on record to say, um, rely on written communication. And in order to write, you have to kind of know yourself. You have to find that quiet to search for your words. You're not just spewing spontaneous things off in in a meeting. There is a place for that, the strategy brainstorming conversations, but not when it comes to policy and purpose and all those other things that we need to do as leaders. So to actually sit down with thought, with intention to write, it becomes, you know, like carving stones, like tablets that you can, that are like canonical resources for your team to know where yes. things are. And you can have great communication where everybody feels aligned and tapped in. Um, and part of that is just, you get to use all those fancy digital tools right. at your disposal to, to broadcast your messages. Oh, completely. Um, I mean, I, I will go yeah. on record to say, Matt, that I completely agree with you. I completely, <laughs> I, I, 
it's uh, I found it so interesting how the lack of sort of reflexive communication and in-person communication becomes a forcing function for much more intentional and thoughtful communication. It's like you have to put more energy into it because it's not as easy just by default. And as a result, it gets better because of that. So thank you so much for sharing that wisdom and for all the wisdom that you've shared. My goodness, there's so many things that, that I took away and I know for everyone who's listening as well. And so, yeah, thank you to everyone who's listening. If you enjoyed this interview with Matt and I, definitely be sure to, to rate our podcast on iTunes. And Matt, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you, Claire. I had a great time. 